Welcome to the new Stand Up Australia podcast. Stand Up sits down with the contrarian conversation rebutting the mainstream narrative. Each week we discuss and deconstruct the most relevant news stories in Australia and around the world so you don't have to and separate fact from fiction so you can make better decisions about which way you want to go politically and personally. So today on the show, we're going to be mixing things up a little bit. Uh, we'll be talking with our special guest, cardiologist, Dr. Christopher Neal, about some of the pretty major developments in the world of so-called vaccines, mandates, and what this may mean for thousands of medical professionals who went along with them, believing the obvious propaganda that the government and governing bodies fed them. So Chris, welcome. Um, this is our first time chatting. Um, you did chat with Peter late last year about the, about the um, election the Victorian election, which was a bit of a <laughs> interesting one. But Chris, you're uh, one of the one of the heads of AMPS, aren't you? One of the directors? Yes. Um, no, thanks for having me on. It's, it's great to be back. And um, it's, a, you know, I really appreciate Stand Up Now Australia and the, and the listeners. Um, I yeah, was, was involved in setting up AMPS in 2021. In about September, as we were getting ready to face mandates affecting healthcare workers in different states, and um, uh, as as we've gone on, you know, last year uh, we started to take the opportunities we had to um, to raise a voice for uh, issues affecting us all in medicine, um, particularly medical free speech. Uh, particularly um, the issue of vaccine, vaccinations, safety. And it's been a, a real privilege to have, to have um, been involved in all that and to get uh, my voice out there and join and support so many people who, who know that uh, things aren't right. And, uh, yeah, so that's my journey. That's what I'm doing. I'm currently president of AMPS. Um, we're approaching... 500 doctors, and we're hoping to really grow this year and achieve much more than we have to date, working alongside many others, many other partners in this whole area, including yourselves, for instance, many doctors, non-doctors, um, and different groups as well. Yeah, fantastic. So when, when was AMPS set up? What year? 2021. Um, yep. Set up uh, as part of the Red Union Group, um, of, of different different unions, so that included the national uh, the uh, nurses professional association of Queensland as a, as a sort of a first union, which predated the pandemic by seven or so years. And now there's an, a number of other unions that people can join. Uh, and so overall, in the family of unions, we're talking about about twenty thousand Australians. Oh wow! Yeah, well, that's that's great. That's fantastic. Yeah, I did see the Red yeah, Union talk a while back, and um, it was great to see what they were doing. You know, sticking out for the for the average Australian who didn't want to go along with this sort of stuff. Yeah, I think so. I, I'm certainly hopeful the medical uh, component will really grow. It's it's said that it's hard in the medical industry to to get doc doctors to change their behaviour, for instance, change their insurance policy or something like that. Um, but I hope that. With everything that's going on and the greater awareness of various issues like um, the fact that more and more doctors are speaking out and being a voice for the victims of vaccine injury, that we'll see more people finding that they, they really need to join with groups like ours. 
Definitely, definitely. And um, look, uh, we generally do about four or five news stories on the show, um, jumping around, but I didn't really see the point of that today because I think the most pressing issue we've got right now is the is the vaccine. I don't see it getting any better. I think um, the cumulative effects of the injuries that we're seeing coming through are just getting worse and worse. And we're seeing a, a bit of a a bit of a bell curve at the moment. Hopefully it's a bell curve, but hopefully it does come down. But we're seeing it getting further and further into dangerous territories, 17%, 20% excess mortality around the world in um, basically every Western country you can see. Uh, anybody who's gone along with these mandates, you've seen massive amounts of death and destruction. Whether or not that's from the vaccine or not, I think uh, we have our opinions, but it definitely needs a little bit more investigation should we say so amps your organization has recently come out and released a really um interesting letter which i've seen just recently on the high wire as well so it's getting a bit of international attention i'm gonna read it here and then i'm gonna get your your thoughts on it and um just explanation of what is going on especially with the insurance companies you were talking about so this is directed to medical practitioners and professionals in Australia, and it regards administering of COVID-19 vaccination. It's, it's likely not indemnified action. This is a notice of your obligations, rights, and potential risks. On, on the 2nd of July 21 and 28th of August 21, the former federal government announced a proposed medical indemnity scheme for health professionals administering the COVID-19 vaccines. Recent correspondence from government advisors outlines that such an indemnity scheme was never established per se. Unlike the case with manufacturers of COVID-19 vaccines, there appears to, be, appears to be no government liability protection beyond the vaccine injury COVID-19 vaccine claims. Uh, government and APRA correspondence outline practitioners' obligations to obtain informed consent. APRA defines informed consent in Section 4.5 of the Good Medical practice code of conduct it is a person's voluntary decision about health care that is made with knowledge and understanding of the benefits and risks involved the australian immunization handbook further states for consent to be legally valid it must be given voluntarily in the absence of undue pressure coercion or manipulation it can only be given after the potential risks and benefits of the relevant vaccine the risks of not having it and any alternative options have been explained to the person. The High Court's decision of Rogers versus Whitaker, 1992, sets today's precedent that's and standard for inform informed consent obligations. A doctor has a duty to warn patients of any material risk involvement in a proposed treatment or else risk uh, tortuous liability from patients. So the 9th of March 2021 joint statement by Apparin National Boards threatens regulatory action for anti-vaccination messages in professional health practice and any promotion of anti-vaccination claims, including on social media. Regardless, evidence from reputable sources demonstrates that COVID-19 provisionally approved vaccines have real known and unknown harms and immunocompromising effects. Doctors have a duty to warn patients of any material risk involved, associated, sorry, with the treatment as well as ensuring the decisions are being made without undue coercion. We encourage you that to be aware that under section 3.4.6 of the Good Medical Practice Code of Conduct, you have a right to provide or directly participate in treatments to which you consciously 
conscientiously object. Sincerely, Australian Medical Professional Society. So, yes, um, I'll go back to the undue pressure, coercion and manipulation part of that, which we saw every single one of those during the rollout and the mandates, especially for people who were scared about losing their jobs, couldn't go into a cafe, couldn't go to hospital, couldn't get treatment. I mean, they were treating people out the back of back of uh, hospitals and alleyways because they weren't allowed to the hospitals up here, up here in Queensland. So uh, let's get let's get your take on this. What does this mean? And uh, what does this mean for medical professionals going forward? Yeah, well, we all we all lived through it. Um, I'm I was working over at the time, uh, so September, October, November, uh, where there was a, a real push here with, under the um, the pandemic powers uh, and under the uh, Public Health and Wellbeing Act uh, powers that were were being exercised. The mandates came about and were announced just at the very end of. September 2021, uh, really with affecting a lot of industries through October. And I think if you look at the proportion of, of uh, Victorians vaccinated, it was well under half before those mandates. And it, it, it went right up afterwards with various reports, you know, the Victorian government maintaining that, that it was over 90% eventually. Uh, and to me, that's, you know, regardless of how accurate those figures are, that that displays that a number of people were hesitant, um, at least by the definition that they had not um, gone out and got the jab themselves on their own steam because of their own convictions by that stage. And so to me, it's nothing to be proud of that we achieved a high rate, given that the ingredient of coercion was undoubtedly present. Now, people can argue that it wasn't, that it was still your choice, but uh, anyone who's, who's got and you know, retained some critical thinking knows that if your livelihood is under threat, uh, then people are going to be coerced. And I have abundant you know, testimony of that from my colleagues. Um, I was aware of a department, I won't name the, 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 the specialty, but a department where uh, 100, there were 120 doctors in this department 20 of them were hesitant by that definition. And by the end of that, all, all, all 20 had become uh, vaccinated. And many other similar proportions, many other similar stories. And you know, the, the fear uh, that was the, the public was subjected to, the stories uh, that, that I would highlight, I had one where a bloke um, came in and, and said that he was getting this under coercion uh, and that he didn't want to have it, he didn't believe it was safe. And he was hoping that the doctor would say, okay, well, I can't vaccinate you. But instead the doctor proceeded to say, you're here and that's enough. You're here and that's enough and proceeded to vaccinate that man who I believe, I recall, had, had uh, difficulties afterwards. And that's really unacceptable because um, a doctor has to be aware, and I think that in the quote you just read out of the letter, which was quoting the, the Australian Immunisation Handbook, that there can be no uh, element of coercion in the picture when someone's coming for a vaccine. And, the, and in fact, that informed consent is invalidated. 
So it's so essential is informed consent that when it's been uh, violated so much, uh, th this has done violence to the whole of the community uh, and the standard of medical care and the, the uh, I guess, the equity we all have in the doctor-patient relationship. We've all got a stake in that or health practitioner relationship. There's been damage done to that and so we're all suffering as a result. Yes, yeah, and you've been right in the thick of it. Obviously, um, you've seen the coercion. And would you would you say the doctor that you were just saying who gave the vaccination to the person who was coerced, who felt coerced anyway? Do you think they did that um, through fear from retribution from APRA or governing bodies, or do you think they did that because they believed in the vaccine? I'm going to say that they believed in the power of the government. Uh, and the, I guess, in their belief system, uh, the fact that if the government says it's okay, then it is okay, despite other objections or considerations like informed consent or safety. So I, I, I sort of feel that throughout this process, doctors were um, led to a place in their very human psychology where they were falling into a trap of believing that it was okay to do it just because the authority was saying it was. So we became what I call authoritarian followers. We think normally of authoritarian leaders who believe they have the right to, um, you know, ride over all our individual rights. But authoritarian followers are those followers who believe in the same thing and therefore are the enablers. I think, unfortunately, a lot of doctors have fallen into that trap. It's very easy to do. Fear is an element, definitely is an element. But um, you might not even, you know, subconsciously I can imagine you can minimise that fear just by going along with it all the way, believing you're with the stronger, the stronger group, you know, the, the stronger tribe, as it were, uh, and therefore everything will be okay. Hmm. Yeah, I, I see... I know, um, not sure if you're familiar with Andrew Bridgen, who's a an MP in in England, who's recently come out and and sort of um, likened what's been going on to the start of Nazi Germany and the Holocaust, uh, and that sort of groupthink that's gone on with people when the majority of people are doing it, it's okay. Well, I know it's wrong, but because everybody's doing it, then you know it's safer for me to to not object and just go along with it. That's, I mean, that's my take on what's going on right now is a lot of, a lot of them kind of know it's not right, but you know, everybody's doing it. So it's okay. And the government approves of it. So it's not illegal. Yeah. But you know, and that's, that's a, a very dim vision of what the rule of law is uh, because no one is above the law, including the government. Mm. And I think that in, uh, the, some really basic principles have been overturned and inverted without a sufficient basis. Everything seemed to come back to this issue. Oh, well, it's a pandemic. We're in a state of emergency. And certainly at the level of the courts and their decisions, that's been the go-to for um, overruling what are really valid concerns and legal arguments regarding, um, regarding medical freedoms, free speech, industrial uh, rights, all sorts of other things. Um, all sorts of other laws that are there for very good reasons have been abrogated because of the idea that we're in a pandemic. And I'm not at all satisfied with that basis uh, of 
of law. I don't believe that's really what, uh, at the end of the day, I don't believe that's how things will be upheld. Um, I don't think that's how where it's going to finish. I think there will be a very significant uh, pushback on all these issues, uh, and I believe I believe that will be through the courts. And I think we should we should talk about some of those things uh, further on. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, and I know that you were saying to me the other day about the insurance companies that that insure doctors for certain malpractice issues and everything. You you're would you say you're convinced that they might not uphold any any of these? Sorry, something pop up just came from my screen. Um, you're convinced that these doctors might not be covered because we're seeing these massive amounts of of injuries and deaths now. I mean, as I said earlier, you've got 20% in the UK. I think you got up to like 25% in some European countries in excess excess mortality. We're at 17% excess cardiac uh, deaths in australia right now and i think that's probably yeah i think i think even that's probably underreported sure well we'll we'll talk we'll talk through the legal things um in the letter and and then we'll go into the excess death discussion um i think with the um so the the letter really seeks to above all else um put put doctors in mind that the the first principles still apply, getting informed consent, and that where informed consent is not properly administered, um, that in, in a case where that leads to injury, then, then medical negligence is certainly something that can be, um, can be uh, pro- um, not prosecuted, but um, pursued through the courts. Now, there was a statement, I believe it was from Greg Hunt when he was the health minister, uh, in 2021, that doctors would not be liable. I don't know if people remember that. Um, I think it was echoed by Scott Morrison um, shortly after, and I think that really uh, that really was a comforting thing, probably at least um, in the in the collective memory of the medical community in Australia. And th- the fact is, there's no basis for that statement in reality. And we've searched in high, high and low. Uh, the what that statement probably led to was the creation of the vaccine injury compensation scheme, which was um, uh, was revisited in and was commenced in September 2021. And that's had millions of dollars of capital put towards it, and and there are claims being made now. It's worth noting that the, the claims being made have to be uh, in line with a short list of acknowledged injuries, such as cerebral venous thrombosis. That was a very early one that, that kicked up a lot of fuss for AstraZeneca in the first few months of 2021, and which you may recall led to the banning of AstraZeneca in about 13 European countries based on the precautionary principle, uh, but not in Australia. So the... Vaccine injury compensation scheme is available. It can be challenging to get a financial reward, but the main point is that the the uh, creation of that scheme did not remove the root of um, civil action by plaintiffs by people who were injured 
And that was explicitly stated by the government at the time of the commencement of the, of the, the scheme. In other words, regardless of the scheme, plaintiffs, everyday people who are injured, can pursue justice, pursue recompense from their doctor in court. Now, if uh, so, so all that is to say that the, the phrase that was given by the government that doctors will not be liable really does not seem to have a basis in law and certainly does not seem to cancel out the root of litigation for medical negligence. So there are, I can tell you there are efforts, significant efforts to, um, to launch class actions. And having looked at this, um, a lot of legal experts have come to the opinion that there's nothing that would, um, that would block this, that would, uh, that would obstruct these sort of class actions. And that there's in fact nothing that would um, lessen the importance of proper, free and informed medical consent, which is really the heart of the issue when it comes to um, medical negligence. If, if something, if a medical procedure, treatment or whatever involves known risks uh, and perhaps even unknown risks, and that has to be expressly understood in discussion between a doctor and a patient. And if a patient can uh, prove that they did, they were not given an understanding of a particular risk, and if that particular uh, risk for them turned out to be a real event and a material harm, then they have every right to pursue um, to that uh, that litigation. So that's sort of where we're at. Um, when it comes to the individual doctor, I need to say very clearly, I've got no desire for doctors in Australia to, um, to uh, suffer financially. Um, but of course, uh, I have every, you know, I'm right behind the community of victims, which is unfortunately a growing one, uh, to get whatever justice they can and for me, for a huge number of reasons, I feel that um, everything needs to be done uh, to get that justice, to, to highlight um, and really review and ref hi highlight the vaccine and the harms, um, the ter terrible uh, abuses that have followed. And it, if, if that's how Australia will come to the place of reviewing and reflecting, then that's how it's got to be. So what I'm saying is um, I think it is inevitable uh, that, that court cases regarding vaccine injury will go forward. I certainly hope they have a huge effect on where this country is going. On the level of the individual doctor, you mentioned their insurance. Because normally uh, doctors are insured by uh, medical indemnity funds. We also provide them lawyers if they're challenged in courts. I would encourage any doctor who's, who becomes aware of this issue um, to check with their health fund. Uh, there's about four or five, uh, sorry, not health fund, I should say, an insurance fund, four or five of them. And uh, I think that a doctor should uh, have that conversation, uh, go through some hypotheticals and see whether they're covered. Um, because it would be very distressing if, um, if that were not the case. 
But all of these are very real issues that have to be worked through. It's uh, on that. Uh, there was rumors during the rollout, the mandates that lots of people were saying your personal health fund might not cover you for any vaccine injury, knowing that it's not a an approved product; it's only provisionally approved or emergency authorized in some countries. Um, well, I, I think that would depend on the issue of diagnosis, um, and I, I don't really think that's a big problem in Australia because the diagnoses are not being like where they're being made, let's, let's put, make this real. Just say someone comes and gets um, a neuropathy, a nerve injury after a vaccination. By and large, they'll simply get a diagnosis of a neuropathy and they'll get the treatment. The, uh, the, the fund, if it's in the private system, would not be aware of any relationship to the vaccine. That's just the way uh, our diagnostic voting yeah. system is working in Australia. Yeah, so you're saying just because because of the the very small time they had to study these vaccines before they were put out onto the onto the public, they didn't pick up what could be injuries, and now they can easily just say it's there's nothing to do with the vaccine. So what what do you think is going to change there then? If that's the case, personally, why do you think it'll be different for for doctors? Oh, in terms of the indemnity funds? Yeah, I mean, like, because obviously there haven't been extensive studies before yeah, this yeah. and they've rolled them out saying they're safe and effective. The only sort of data we have to say that these are, are dangerous is the post-marketing data, which everybody's saying, you know, yeah. that doesn't matter yeah, because but, we know they're safe and effective from the trials, which only went for six months. Um, yeah. How, how we get, like, how are we going to... How are we going to sort of get to the point where we can prove these vaccines are harming people this way? We're talking about um, we're talking about the health funds not covering yeah. people, which I don't think is a concern at all because it's impossible to localize vaccine injuries on the data they have. You yeah. see, because they just get the diagnoses, and although in some countries you can tie it through the coding. Reimbursement coding, you can't in Australia. Yeah. So I think, um, like I was saying just before, like obviously they're going to fight back on anything to do with vaccine injury, saying, "Oh no, no, that's not that's not from that." It's. I mean, you're seeing it now with they're blaming long COVID. Which what is long COVID? For me, it's most likely a vaccine injury. Um, you know, obviously, I think maybe sometimes there are people that really stuff their immune system because it is a strange disease. Um, most long COVID is a long COVID is is a probably a number of things. Um, I think there's some some blood effects. Um, there's work, a very interesting work by um, Dr. Pretorius in South Africa, um, together with Dr. Jaeger in Germany, uh, regarding a kind of a, a fibrin amyloid, a fibrin amyloid um, type of clot uh, it's not a standard blood clot by any means but it's a it's a clot that can be identified with uh, under the microscope yep uh, and it can be really quite abundant and it's in the nano sort of scale it's not something you would see and it can be filtered uh, there's a i mean i could put you in touch with them for an interview if you like um because 
That's certainly very, very interesting in some, you know, some of huge interest. Um, and some countries are really taking on board what they're saying. So is this to do with COVID or the vaccine uh, you're talking about? That's that's long COVID. Now a lot yeah. of a lot of observers are of the view that um, the post-vaccination syndrome uh, could be very similar uh, because the common denominator in both is the presence of spike protein. Mm. It's an incredibly toxic protein, as everyone would know. Um, and, and, you know, it's injurious to cells. Certainly um, it, the spike protein enters cells. That's what it was so good at from the start with COVID disease from Wuhan onwards. Um, so producing the spike protein after COVID it, um, for a prolonged time gives you long COVID and producing the spike protein after vaccination for a prolonged time gives you or would give you a syndrome probably or at least it's a very good hypothesis. The people that would speak against that would, would simply go back to this this idea that the, there's only a transient production of spike protein due to vaccination. And really, that's not a statement which I find is backed by evidence. What I would say is that um, we know that some people after vaccination can produce the, the Wuhan spike protein for a very long time, very long time. And, um, and, and others may not, you know, others may produce it hopefully for a very short time which would be much more in, line, in keeping with what we expect from, you know, the job of a vaccination. Yeah. So, yeah, I think there's a huge overlap, uh, even in the Australian government's call for uh, you know, long COVID submissions, which occurred, I think, in November, December. Um, there, was, um, uh, there was a lot of authors, including Karen Phelps, uh, writing in, to the federal government and saying there's an overlap. There's an, it's important to recognise long uh, sort of syndromes following vaccination. Yes, and I think um, with Karen Phelps, what she said, she has overlapped. A lot of people have sort of taken that, heard copping out a little bit and saying that long COVID is a problem and vaccination is a problem. But the way I understood it was that she is saying that there is an overlap there and they are very similar things. And now that yeah. this, the one thing I worry about now is trying to really pin the blame on one or one or the other is almost impossible because as you said 90 what is it 92 93 percent of the population has been injected and i would say probably well yeah well i mean some people think it's a lot less than that let's go with the official stats which is what they the officials will be basing their decisions on in the future unless we can prove otherwise yeah the the federal stats are more like 85 percent double double backed and and yeah well, that's including mm -hmm. children, though, or is that because I know oh, that they're just talking about people over back. 16 when they say 93%. Yes, that whole thing, yeah, the whole thing of the denominator changing. So yeah. it's hard to know exactly. But in saying that, most people have had COVID that I know. There's only a couple mm -hmm. of people. So you could easily say, well, that's not the vaccine, it's COVID, obviously. But I mean, there's the real possibility that it's both. And in a small percentage of the population, it is really injuring people at the same time. Most people I know aren't aren't overly, well, not overtly injured by the vaccine anyway, not even yet. But there is a quite a large percentage of the population, sort of sort of three percent up to 
I think the the American data from their own VSAFE was saying seven percent of all people went back to hospital, hospitalized, and that was people that agreed to get the vaccine. These aren't anti-vaxxers that are doing these doing these studies. These are people that have got the vaccine and believe in it. So, yeah. as I said, my main concern here is the fact that this will just be blamed on COVID. Um, and you've seen that um, in some of the news stories here. I've got one here which says fatal heart attacks have surged in Australia, and here's why. So they know why. They're saying it's long uh-huh. COVID and yep. says... The pandemic has caused a surge of fatal cardiac arrests in Australia as delayed care and COVID's damaging effect on the heart drives a major uptick in serious heart issues. So it says more than 10,200 Australians have died of ischemic, um, am I saying that? Ischemic heart disease in the first eight months. Ischemic, of, yeah. ischemic of 2022. It's about 17% higher than would be expected in a normal year. So they have gone and said, oh, it's COVID. And there's no way to prove that it's not because everybody that's had COVID has also had the vaccine, if you believe the official figures. But they're in, they're, as I understand, and you might be able to illuminate this a little bit more, is that there is no studies that have said that the risk of heart disease or stroke or anything else is significantly improved from the COVID disease. I know one in particular in Israel recently where they studied 200,000 people and they found absolutely no indicators that having people having COVID increased their factors of getting any sort of heart problems at all. So do you know anything further about this? Yeah, I mean, um, cardiovascular disease um, is, is mainly driven by coronary heart disease and also stroke. Um, so coronary heart disease is understood as a disease of the inner lining of the coronary arteries, which are the arteries around the heart. Um, the endothelium is a single cell layer at the innermost layer of that. Uh, and uh, due to a variety of factors, someone can get disease of that, which can lead first of all to thickening and then accumulation of plaques, uh, which is where the cholesterol comes in. And that's called atherosclerosis, as people would know. Um, once someone has atherosclerosis, uh, there can be various trigger events which can cause that plaque to rupture. Uh, stress and anger um, could be a, a, a known trigger events, but lots of other things, um, including viral infections. So it's not incorrect to say that uh, something like a viral infection uh, can tip the balance in someone who's already vulnerable. I think that's a fairly reasonable thing. It's something I've observed countless times in my career as a cardiologist and in acute cardiology, that something is often in the picture and it may have been a few weeks before or maybe at the time. Um, But, you know, a vaccine is also an inflammatory event. And so I have personally seen heart attacks uh, due to or immediately following vaccinations with various different vaccinations, um, you know, including when I was still practicing, which is 20, uh, most of 2021, uh, when the vaccines were present, I was seeing events, I was seeing deaths, I was seeing 
uh, heart attacks, not just myocarditis, which you could sort of call a heart attack, but that's a slightly different process, certainly not the one I've just described. And I was also seeing strokes. So these are just, these are just anecdotal things, uh, but I believe there are signals if you know how to interrogate the data that these, these are um, events that have been observed through the notifications in the uh, databases such as the DAEN, which is our um, Australian pharmacovigilance database. So there's a number of things that can go wrong. Uh, I remember a, a patient who had uh, chronic disease. I was seeing him. He was around about the 80 years mark. Um, and I was reviewing him by telehealth. He hadn't wanted to get the vaccination, but his, his son had prevailed upon him um, and the the unit the other unit that was treating him in the hospital had prevailed upon him. He got the vaccination. It was AstraZeneca, first dose. Four days later, he had a stroke, and three days after, he passed away. Uh, his son was distraught. I rang his phone to try and do a scheduled appointment, and his son took me through all that story uh, about how he'd been lost. So it's. I think that there's a lot of a lot of things that can go wrong, and I would just say this: um, when we have a, a big problem, such as excess death or you know excess cardiac death, as you pointed out, we need to approach that with a really open mind. There may be a lot of factors. In fact, it's very unlikely that such an unprecedented rise in cardiovascular death uh, would would be due to the usual suspects. Now, what I mean is the usual cardiovascular risk factors that, um, that have been described, such as obesity, hypertension, uh, cholesterol abnormalities, um, physical inactivity, diabetes, and smoking, those sort of things. The question is, uh, could, could the changes in those things have, have explained a 17% jump? And the other question is, even if they perhaps could, have we taken anything into account? And that's what I'd say to my colleagues who are just inclined to say there's nothing to see here and it couldn't possibly be the vaccine. I'm happy to cover the, the basic mechanism very briefly as why I believe it absolutely could be the vaccine. Um, and I'll use Pfizer as the example, but I think everything I say would apply to AstraZeneca. You get an injection in the deltoid. You, uh, as everyone knows now, um, there are nanoparticles, lipid nanoparticles that are in the range of 50 to 100 nanometers, which is extraordinarily small. And that enables them to, to travel quite efficiently in the fluid of the tissue, which is called lymphatic fluid, through the lymphatic system into a lymph node. Now, if you were a really small particle, such as less than 30 nanometers, you'd be more likely to be um, more rather than less filtered by the lymph node, which is, after all, a filter for the immune system. That's what a lymph node is. But if you're in that zone where you're, you're well above that, um, you, you're efficiently, that, that particle is efficiently going to travel down uh, the sort of the main channel of the lymph node through the lymph node and not be filtered there. And so it follows that um, shortly after, very shortly after, in minutes, 
that particle will be returned to the blood, uh, blood supply in the central venous system. And once you're in there, you're going to be recirculating uh, in the in the cardiac in the in the circulation. Um, so we know from some evidence that it was done in animal studies, but was not available early. It had to be kind of obtained by various Freedom of Information Act requests that within minutes, indeed, that lipid nanoparticle can be detected in the blood. We also know from a series of studies, putting them all together, that after several days, only 7% of the particle or the particles are present in the, the deltoid. The 93% have taken that route. You know, some will, some will have gone to the lymph nodes, of course, but a large part would have also been in the circulation. These now, are lip lipid nanoparticles you're talking about? The... Yeah, 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 the lipid nanoparticles. So given that the nanoparticles are going to um, be circulating, is that a good thing? What's going to happen? Well, they're very small, and in fact, um, but they're not quite small enough to get out of a capillary very easily. They fit between the cells of the capillary. You have to be more like 20 nanometers. So they recirculate, and we know this from studies, for not just days, but weeks. And in that time, they'll gradually accumulate in certain articles and sorry, certain organs. And the, the data suggests they'll accumulate in liver, in spleen, in the colon, but also interestingly, the ovarian, the ovaries of female rats, and some other places. And um, so there's this recirculation, and eventually they're getting out in certain locations. But the the, uh, the circulatory system itself, as I said, is lined by cells, which are called endothelial cells. And eventually that's where a lot of these lipid nanoparticles will uh, interact. Now, the interaction of the lipid nanoparticles with cells has damaging effects. We know that, uh, including the fact that they've got a positive charge. And, but, of course, those lipid nanoparticles are designed to go into a cell and deposit that mRNA sort of payload into, inside the cell. And I would argue, and others have argued from even before the rollout, that the endothelial cells, which is the inner lining of the cardiovascular system, will be a, a, a site where a lot of the lipid nanoparticles and the, um, the mRNA is deposited. Now, if you think about that, that's that's a sort of a tennis court size. If you've got all the surface area of endothelial cells, it's about a tennis court size. But the pressure points um, would include areas like the the coronary circulation, the cardiac blood vessels. So yeah. I would say that's, you know, it's predictable that you would be putting the mRNA inside those cells. Once they're in there, they're going to cause spike protein. Once there's spike protein, there's already going to be damage to the cell working itself, including the mitochondria, the energy system. And then furthermore, there'll be immune um, effects. So once there's a spike protein in a cell, that cell will tend to be, tend to be um, attacked by the immune system itself. So all, all of this, putting this in mechanistically, the main point is it doesn't stay in the deltoid muscle. 
Yeah. It disseminates very widely. And I think that's thoroughly inappropriate. Everything I just said should never have been allowed. Um, if people were explained that, do you, do you want that protein from Wuhan in your heart? Do you want that? Do you want that expressed in the, um, you know, the the uh, coronary arteries? And if if you one were to explain the implications, there's no way that that people would find that an acceptable idea. What I think is the acceptable idea of vaccines, let's just be very general, is that it just goes in your arm and then the immune system comes to it and, and gets, the, um, gets the picture, gets the antigen, gets the uh, immune memory of that. And the other point is, from what I'm saying, myocarditis pretty much is where the, the spike protein, sorry, I'm talking about myocarditis due to the vaccine, and this is based on... Uh, histology and autopsy studies, um, a, a selection of different studies, the spike protein through the liver nanoparticle and mRNA is produced in the heart tissue. What happens next is the um, what happens next is the immune system then attacks the heart and particularly the subendocardial uh, sort of innermost layer of heart muscle. And the immune, uh, the, the immunohistochemistry, which is the microscope slides, look very much like an immune attack on the heart, which is exactly what you would predict as one of the problems. And indeed, there are other autoimmune type attacks that have been described, although not as commonly as myocarditis. So I would say the, the myocarditis following Pfizer vaccine is, um, at the very least, an autoimmune spike protein uh, myocarditis. And I think that is unacceptable. That is mechanistically avoidable. We should never have had spike protein being expressed in hearts. That would never have been an acceptable idea if it was expressed in, in a clear way at the onset and at the outset. Uh, one other thing regarding, you know, why do, you know, it may help us understand why some people get the myocarditis and some don't. And that has to do with uh, a study which was recently published showing that people who had suffered myocarditis after vaccination versus those who had not suffered myocarditis were much more likely to have a persistence of circulating spike protein in their blood, which can be measured in tiny amounts, picomolar amounts. And uh, that's very intriguing. And I would say it may be that those who... But what, what I would say that represents is a more efficient, although, um, you know, uh, an efficient but hazardous expression of spike protein. So the production of spike protein may be more efficient in those who uh, have had myocarditis. And, in fact, that may have been why they got myocarditis. They may have got um, just a, a greater production and, uh, and certainly it would have to have been in the heart, I think, to have, um, to have caused that reaction. Uh, and that may explain some of the variation, you know, just maybe unlucky, maybe dose-related or batch-related as well. Yeah, and it seems to be, like you were saying as well, is overactive immune systems, um, which is probably why you're seeing it in younger, younger people. 
you know, seeing it in God. Um, I mean, I've got I've got an article here. It says cardiac arrests can happen to children. What parents of kids in sports should know, because you're seeing it now, every day now. I, and I feel like I'm seeing it more. I see um, so and so, fifteen year old, fifteen years old, drop dead. The the number one MMA fighter for in girls. Uh, she's sixteen. The other uh, about two months ago, dropped dead from cardiac arrest. Yeah. Um, and what you're explaining just there sort of it makes me concerned that anybody who does have an immune system um, or an active immune system is more likely to get this this disease. And this might just be the tip yeah, of the iceberg. Yeah, I think it's possible, unfortunately, but there's also um, something to say about batches. Um, there's a lot of information about batch numbers uh, and it, what that shows is an unbelievably large variation in how many notifications are made about adverse events um, varying with the batch. And that is totally unacceptable because pharmaceutical products must be consistent and that's called good manufacturing practice. That's a whole uh, discipline in, um, in the industry that's, that's developed over decades. So that is, um, you know, th there are batches that are more likely, it seems, certainly to be associated with death uh, or other adverse events. I think the I think that's a, a critically critically important issue to highlight in Australia because our uh, database, which sometimes our government has has said how good it is, uh, well, I would have to say our database does not have the does not display to the public the batch numbers. Yeah. And that is unacceptable. That is unacceptable because the duty of the TGA, of course, when it comes to looking at the safety of, of post-marketing um, products is to the people of Australia. And the people of Australia must be informed of those issues. And I think there's now a massive concern regarding batch numbers. And that may be to do with uh, variability in manufacturing. And these are things that absolutely have to be fully reviewed. Um, and and uh, in fact, there's, there's a whole other case of uh, litigation, if not prosecution, when it comes to um, these manufacturing issues. Yeah. And I know in Australia, the, the pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical companies, like every other country they've gone into, um, have signed a waiver for these sorts of things and put it over onto the government. But where do you see this going in the next in the next few months? And how do we how do we get there now? Um, what what are the next what what's the next stages for for you for amps in trying to expose these these problems with the vaccinations and maybe even get out this problem of of batch numbers because I, I have heard it. Um, um, explained as well it's most likely very shoddy manufacturing processes from the speed of manufacturing where people are either getting pretty much a saline injection because there's no mrna or lipid proteins in that batch they've got to the point where someone's getting about five times as much as they should so where do yeah, we go where do we go from here well with, with regard to the batch numbers i'm pleased to say there's some progress and um this will be something that I plan to be um, in correspondence with the, the government about, uh, with other colleagues. 
and I think it's a very hot topic. Um, but but we we are effect, we are starting to get those batch numbers. Um, so that's good. Now, when you said other countries having sort of waivers and and uh, what I'll say is that if fraud can be um, can be proven, then I, I, as I understand it, waivers and, and sort of non-liability schemes of companies um, by governments should not hold. So that'll be the, the great test of, I think, our, our system. You know, are, are we going to be able to um, prosecute that? I'm hopeful that there will, and, and I think that for the earliest, <clears throat> earliest stage, is going to be um, litigation in a civil court. I believe that'll be class actions. But I, I think that every <clears throat> everywhere where we can see that laws have been broken, we need to explore prosecutions. And that's a whole other topic. Um, but I think that's how that's how things work. If you, you know, if you want to move on uh, as a <coughs> as a country, I believe that's pretty much the only way to do that. Now, other things that are, I can say, um, what's going on now, there are other battlefields, um, particularly in the matter of, there are other battlefields, particularly in the matter of, of free speech, medical free speech, in overregulation of medicine uh, to the point where doctors have been infringed upon in their own um, intellectual freedom. I think that is now a... You know that the there are other issues on the battlefront, I believe, um, and medical free speech is a big part of that. There are many doctors who can make a good case that they've been infringed upon by the government and by medical regulators in in the country, and and part of that argument, I think, is that intellectual freedom has been undermined by the position of bodies such as APRA and the medical boards. APRA is the Australian Health Practitioners Regulation Authority or agency. So um, I draw listeners' attention to an article in The Spectator, which was published today by Dr. Michael Keane, who's a, a, a Melbourne anaesthetist, as well as Mrs. Cara Thomas, who's the Secretary of AMS. And that's something I'm incredibly proud of them for, it's it's a an article you just have to read regarding the suppression of, of intellectual freedom, and they base their argument partly on uh, Professor Ridd's case, the the professor who um, James Cook University uh, fired, but in the High Court, uh, unanimously the judges spoke about intellectual freedom, and they made some very clear statements about the fact that intellectual freedom was protected and that should not uh, be undermined, that was enriching for society. And so although that dispute had been uh, in the intellectual space to do with his research on the Great Barrier Reef, um, and there was a disagreement on that, and although ultimately the university won the case based on the clauses in Professor Reid's contract, uh, it's still the case that the High Court took pains to show how important intellectual freedom was. 
I believe that doc, many doctors in Australia uh, could could say the same regarding the APRA gag orders and that this has cut across their intellectual freedom as well as many other fundamentals in their role as doctors. So that's something that's being played out actively um, and, and to name a few names, we have uh, Dr. Mark Hobart down in, here in Victoria who will be taking APRA to the High Court of Australia. Now that's very important uh, what he's doing <clears throat> and we, we are fully supportive of him and always have been. He's the one uh, that had his, his uh, office raided, wasn't it? That's true, yeah. Yep. Um, and you know, someone I, I've known since before the pandemic, and in his case, he uh, he is appealing a Victorian Supreme Court uh, hearing that he had, a uh, result that he had. So that's, that's fantastic. Um, we wish him every success. And in addition to that, there's Dr. William Bay that many listeners would be aware of who, if I'm not mistaken, will be taking uh, his matter forward into the Supreme Court of Queensland. Yes. Um, yep. Yeah. So two very important things. Now, I'll just say we, we fully support the, uh, the right of uh, doctors to have intellectual freedom and freedom of political communication. We believe uh, that they have every right to voice their concerns that they have, um, even if it's offensive to some people, the way they uh, uh, relate their concerns or communicate their concerns, that in no way should their, their freedoms be undermined. And I think that the Australian public and the courts, I hope, should understand that if, if doctors are undermining their intellectual freedom, then in fact we're all undermined because the whole public of Australia has equity in the doctor-patient relationship, it affects us all. And we, we cannot allow this, um, this culture, this culture of uh, suppression of doctors to, to go forward. And uh, I think doctors are critical, the, 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 sorry, I should say the freedom of doctors to think critically, even if it's critically of the government, is essential to the well-being of our society. So there are two things I think they're very important. Um, I can when think when other things regarding class actions become uh, uh, no actually scrub that bit. I need to also say there is another class action. Um, so there's there's also um, a another class action, Mitch, which I'll um, maybe give you details of, which is. Uh, accepting accepting plaintiffs uh, based out of Queensland, but that would be going to the Federal Court of Australia, I believe. So that's for plaintiffs who are uh, injured by the vaccine, and I'll give you the uh, details for that. Beautiful. Um, Check it in the show notes. Because I don't want to get the precise name of the class action wrong, <laughs> but uh, that'd be good if you could put in the show notes. But right, you know, basically our position is we support. Um, all these efforts, um, and yes, um, we've also we've got we're very pleased to be welcoming Peter McCullough to um, Australia uh, in the next week or so. So that's fantastic. I'll be really looking forward to hearing him speak along with others in on the 
12th of February in Melbourne. Yep. And um, I, had the, I had the privilege of being on an interview with him on Saturday morning with Graham Hood and John Lada. That was great. Um, so there's lots of good things that are happening. There may, I, I'm, I'm, there's also going to be an event in Canberra uh, next week, the week after this one, uh, which I might just put, I might give you the details, but they're not quite available. Uh, we're just deciding something. Um, well, soon, as soon as anything is, we'll chuck everything on Stand Up Australia website um, and get right. that out on our socials as well. But look, it sounds like you're doing some amazing stuff. Um, very, very busy guy, and I really appreciate you jumping on today and having a chat. So I know um, you don't have a lot of time to do these sorts of things, but I think the the more we get the word out there and just really hammer this home, uh, this is it. This is really is our time to shine after the last couple of years, and the more factual information we get out there to the general public, uh, the better because the tide is turning and we can finally start to get some answers and some retribution for the crimes that have been committed over the last couple of years. We can never let this happen again. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, yeah. So, yeah, apologise. I, I didn't have the exact... I don't want to get the name wrong for the first class action, but I'm, I can tell you there'll be at least two for vaccine injury victims. And you'll be going um, after the government specifically on that or pharma companies? No, no, not pharma companies at all. No, it's not. I don't think that's the strategy at all. But um, it's premature to talk about um, a bit more, any more than that. Um, yeah. But, yeah, um, I certainly, yeah, I hope we'll have a lot of, a lot of good disruption going forward into this year and the next I think we will. I think we will. Um, look, at our, our time our time is up, unfortunately, with this Zoom call. I'm about to get cut off. But I'd love to have you back on the show again um, just to get a bit of update what's going on and maybe even talk about some of the other things that are going on in the world. Um, if you'd like to do that, that'd be great. Yeah, 